Well, good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be looking at the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the first six verses. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation, chapter 3, first six verses this morning. Last book in the Bible, third chapter of the last book in the Bible, first six verses. Jesus begins speaking to the Apostle John, and he tells him, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of my message this morning is Jesus' Message to a Dead Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could gather together, Lord, and your word that has everything we need for life and for godliness that we can look at, we can study. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here and teaching us these things that we need to hear, Lord, that we need to apply in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially touch their heart, that they would see their need for you, their need to repent, and their need to commit their life to you. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Have your way in our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a story I heard about a young guy, a young kid, who was going to the uh, neighborhood ice cream store, and he would ask the, the owner there, well, do you carry carrot ice cream? And the owner said, no, we don't. So he leaves. The next day he goes there again. Do you have carrot ice cream? Same answer. Same reaction. Third day, he goes in again. Hey, mister, do you have any carrot ice cream? Seller starts to get a little bit annoyed, but he gives that plain no, same as before, and the kid leaves. Next day, same thing. Do you have carrot ice cream? The seller says annoyed, says no, annoyed, but he's baffled by what this little kid wants. And so when the kid leaves, he decides he's going to try and find this carrot ice cream. So he calls his vendors, and he calls around, and, and he finds it. And he gets it and he brings it in. So now he's waiting for the kid to show up and ask him about the ice cream. Happy he's managed to accommodate what this child wants. So the next day the kid appears and he comes to me and says, Do you have carrot ice cream? Yes, the seller replies, we do. To which the kid says, it's horrible, isn't it? Uh, how about this? This just a few. I found it. It's called Strange But Real Ice Cream Flavors. Okay? In Tokyo, they have an indoor amusement park called Namja Town, and they have what is called horse flesh ice cream. 
It's raw horse flesh. It's, the article says it has tickled visitors' taste buds for years. They also carry cow tongue, octopus, and squid flavors. I'll pass on that. Next one I read. Since opening, Max and Mina's ice cream cream store in Queens, New York, brothers and owners Bruce and Mark Becker have created more than 5,000 one-of-a-kind ice cream flavors, which include corn on the cob, horseradish, garlic, pizza, lox, and jalapeno. All have made the lineup. This one, I think there's a few guys in the church that will probably like this one. This is from the ice cream store in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. In addition to their Devil's Breath Carolina Reaper Pepper ice cream, a bright red vanilla ice cream mixed with cinnamon and a Carolina Reaper Pepper mash, there's also the classic Ghost Pepper ice cream. Just be warned, you'll have to sign a waiver if you plan to order either flavor. Listen, in the same way, there are over 340,000 Christian churches in the U.S. today. And most of them seem to have their own unique flavor. Christianity and church life in America seems to be very diverse. We assume churches are like ice cream. They come in multiple flavors and, and some are pretty horrible. Yet, if anything, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 teaches us that there are only seven types of churches and really seven sorts of church members. In Scripture, we know that number seven speaks of spiritual perfection and completion. So even though there are 340,000 congregations in America, there's really only seven types of churches and Christians. And you can find these seven types in these seven letters to the seven churches. And we begin to look now at the church of Sardis this morning. We have to remember that the four things that we've seen apply to these seven letters and these seven churches. That each one of them is addressed uh, to actual churches. And they can be applied personally, prophetically, practically, and historically. Now, historically, Sardis was one of the greatest cities of the world. It had been the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia in the 6th century B.C., there was this very wealthy king by the name of Croesus who became a, a byword for uncounted wealth. Sardis soon became characterized by this loose, luxurious lifestyle. It was located on this almost inaccessible plateau. Its acropolis was on this, this uh, uh, nearly perpendicular rock walls about 1,500 feet straight up above the main roads. The only way in was from the south, which made them virtually unconquerable. Yet several times in Sardis' history, they were invaded. One time it was by the Persians, another time it was by the Greeks. Both times it was done by surprise. They were so confident that their walls would protect them that they didn't adequately put enough soldiers out there. And some brave soldiers would climb up the sides of the ravine. They would enter the city when it was being unwatched and they would overthrow the city. So a complacency spirit characterized Sardis. Well, that attitude seemed to spill over to the church itself that was there. This church in Sardis has been called by many different names over the years. For example, it's been called the Fruitless Church, or the Church of Spiritual Apathy, or the Church with a Reputation but Needing Resuscitation. It's been called the Feeble Church. The best one I heard was it's the Church of the Living Dead, 
Because if Jesus says you have a name that you are alive but you are dead, I, I, I found this image that I thought really described it very, pretty well. It, it looks like this. Can we get it on the screen? Can we get it on the screen? <laughs> there it is. The church is a kind of creepy looking building there like that. And I think all those names applied to this church in Sardis. I heard about a church that was so dead that when a member actually died in service that the paramedics carried out five people before they got to the right one. That's a story. That really didn't happen. It's just a made-up story. G. Campbell Morgan said, Organized Christianity which fails to make a disturbance is dead. Listen, if we're not making some kind of disturbance, some kind of difference in our world for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then something is wrong. And so before us is Jesus' message to a dead church. A church that outwardly seemed to have a lot going on, but inwardly it was dead as a doornail. Now we're going to see first the Lord diagnose its problem, and then we're going to see his prescription for renewal, for revival. So if you're taking notes, you should be able to guess the three points that I have this morning. Number one, the commendation. Number two, the criticism. And number three, the correction. First and foremost, the commendation. So what does Jesus have to say good to this church? Not much. Jesus says in verse 1, I know your works, that you have a name. So this was not a lazy church. It wasn't an inactive church. It was not a church that was filled with paganism like the church of Thyatira was that we looked at last week or before that, the church of Pergamos. This is a church that had regular church services if someone said, hey, where do you go to church? And you said, oh, I go to the church of Sardis. They would know what church you're talking about. They had a name, Jesus said. You know, there are churches today. They have a name. You've heard about these churches. Bethel Church, you heard about. Or Lakewood Church. Or the Episcopal Church. Or James River Church. Or Calvary Chapel's churches. All churches have a name. But some, unfortunately, like Sardis, have a name. But they have some serious problems within the church. Like Sardis... Uh, uh, listen, Sardis was a church that was humming with activity. There was no shortage of money. There was no shortage of talent. There was no shortage of, of manpower. Outwardly, it had every indication of a church on the move or there was something wrong on the inside. That brings us to point number two, the criticism. Look what Jesus says after he says, I know your works that you have a name. He says at the end of verse three, he says, uh, you, have the, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And he says, verse 3, I have not found your works perfect before God. That word perfect can also be translated fulfilled. I've not found your works fulfilled before God. In other words, this church was just an empty shell with no, no body to fill them. They had routines, they had activities, they had programs, but they did not fulfill God's purpose or pattern. You might say, well, did they pray? I'm sure they did. But their prayers were no higher than the ceiling of their buildings because they were more interested in the form of prayer rather than who they were praying to. Did they listen to sermons? I'm sure they did. In fact, they were probably more interested in the skill of the orator than the message itself. Did they worship? Well, I expect that they probably had the most beautiful worship you'd ever heard. It's probably performed with great precision, great songs. They had it all. The problem was they were more interested in their technique and what they were doing rather than who they were worshiping. So Jesus says you are dead. Now when you hear that term, what do you picture in your mind? I love that picture of that church. It looks kind of creepy. 
Maybe you picture a scene from The Walking Dead, perhaps a, you know, a church full of zombies, some scene out of a Hollywood B movie with the title like Night of the Living Dead or the, I Married a Zombie. But really what's scarier than B movies and zombies is spiritually speaking, one of those corpses could be you, could be me. Because remember, the church is made up of people like us. And we could be doing all the right things outwardly, but on the inside we could be dead. We can sing songs worshipfully and beautifully, but in fact we may be very aware of how beautifully we sing our songs. In fact, we sing those songs really, really good. In fact, we're singing those songs so good that we have no little thought about who we're singing to. We're, we're just singing them out. We're hitting those high notes. In fact, I can sing better than Chris Tomlin, who wrote that song. I'm thinking singing so good. Or, you know, you can pray a prayer and be more focused on the, the structure of your prayer and the beauty of your prayer instead of who you're praying to. Or again, we can be more impressed with, with, uh, to, with, with the skill of a communicator rather than hearing the message that, that the person is trying to communicate. Again, this was their problem. They had all the externals going on, but inwardly there was no pulse. They were flatlining. They were dead. Jesus says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Now, prophetically, how does this fit in with church history? Where do we find this? Now, remember, we talked about this before. There were seven different church ages. The first church, the early church, starting in the day of Pentecost. Jesus addressed them in the book, in chapter 2, the church of Ephesus. That lasted until about 99 A.D. Well, the next church that came about was the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. That lasted until about 313 A.D., which led to the church of Pergamos, which lasted about to 600 A.D. Remember, Pergamos meant, the name meant objectionable marriage, and that's when the church became married to the state. A man named Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Then came the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. Thyatira, if you mean, comes from two words meaning sacrifice and continual, or continual sacrifice. That's the Roman church describes very clearly what takes place when they call what they call the sacrifice of the Mass. There's a continual sacrifice in the Catholic doctrine and what they call transubstantiation. It's a word that is used for what takes place when they practice their distorted view of communion. We know, as we pointed out last week, that the Bible teaches that Jesus was offered once and for all on the cross. Yet Catholics believe that the bread turns actually into the Lord's body and the blood actually turns into the blood, the wine turns into the blood of Christ. And so they sacrifice Jesus afresh every single time they hold a mass together. A continual sacrifice, Thyatira. So it's no accident that the name Sardis, the next church we're looking at, means the escaping ones. For this was the church who followed and recovered biblical truth by escaping the Roman heresy. Even today, Rome teaches that grace is not enough. Works are also needed to be right with God. Christ is not enough. You also need a, the mediation between you and a priest. Faith is not enough. Participation in the sacraments is, is required to gain God's favor. Scripture is not enough, they teach, for church tradition also holds the same authority as Scripture. And God's glory is not a, uh, glory of God is not enough for the church, and namely the Pope should also share in Christ's glory. You know what the word Protestant means? It means one who protests. And Sardis, with all the rest of the Protestant church, protested. They counted against 
the Roman, countered against the Roman heresies with five solas, sola gratia, sola Christo, sola fide, sola scriptura, and sola de, deo gloria, or grace alone, Christ alone, Christ alone, faith alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. That was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. Had reformers like Luther and Tyndale and Wesley and Wycliffe that, that sparked a spiritual revival in the church. This man, John Wycliffe, he held views and teachings that were radically opposite, opposed to the teachings and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. This one man, Wycliffe, said that Jesus is the head of the church, not some appointed pope. He renounced the teachings that were unbiblical and says we need to get back to what the Bible says. He had a desire to see the Bible in the hands of every man, woman, and child, and they could read it for themselves. So in the year 1382, he completed the first translation of the Bible into the English language. And that's why we have the Wycliffe Bible Society today. Now, what did he get for his efforts? Well, he was excommunicated by the Roman church. Two of his disciples, John Huss and Hugh Latimer, were burned at the stake. But their deaths sparked and the stirrings of a reformation that would bring, begin to burn throughout all of England. That spark would turn into an inferno some hundred years later when a young monk by the name of Martin Luther started struggling with his theology in Germany. And the more he studied, the more that he knew that he could never be righteous enough to earn God's favor, though he tried radically. He thought that he could earn God's favor by punishing his flesh. He would actually beat himself up. He would sleep out in the cold and freezing cold temperatures. He would fast for long periods of time, all thinking that in some way he was earning God's favor. He became so distressed by all of this that he decided he was going to take a journey to Rome to meet with the Pope to talk to the head guy. Well, on his journey, he ended up getting sick. He stopped off in this Alpine monastery to recuperate when one of the monks, sensing Luther's struggle, told him to read the book of Habakkuk. Why Habakkuk? Well, because Habakkuk was, was one who wrestled with the same things that he was wrestling with. Well, Luther took his advice and he came to chapter 2 and verse 4, and a light came on to him. And he read, the just shall live by faith. Oh, that's it, he cried. I'm gonna, if I'm going to be just, it's not because of what I do or what I don't do, but it's by faith in what God has done and who he is. Excited, Luther returned to Germany, took a stand against the Roman Catholic Church and the height of the Reformation. Many of us know this happened on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his list of 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, coming against the pagan practices and the rituals of the Roman Catholic Church. More or less setting into motion the series of events that we call the Protestant Reformation. But as quickly as that rose up, it died just as quick. That's why Jesus calls us to church that was alive and now is dead. Because what the Protestant church, the Protestant Reformation failed to do is, is uh, it didn't reform enough. And as a result of the Reformation, state churches were put into place. And Martin Luther sought out the political approval of the political leaders and eventually the Lutheran church became the state church of Germany as did others throughout Europe. And the danger in that is when the church is made up of the entire population, then, then that eliminates the need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So, either way, the church was well on its way of dying, so Jesus has some words for it. Again, that's why he says in verse 2, I have not found your works perfect before God. And we can come all the way to today and the mainline Protestant churches today and find, find that they are dead as well. Why? Well, because they no longer believe the Word of God is inspired and given to us by God. And they've made many, many compromises. Tragically, the Protestant church has a greater sin than the Roman church with her bloodshed and immorality because the Protestant church has bought into such liberal theology. They've escaped, uh, rather accepted sexual immorality in the church. Not only in the church, but in the church leadership. They've embraced abortion, even partial birth abortions, while still calling themselves Christians. Interesting, I just read that more than 350 faith leaders endorsed Joe Biden for president, citing a need for moral clarity to restore the soul of this nation. Moral clarity... I think the Democrat platform is very clear with what they believe and there's no morality to it. They can't be more clear than that. And they want to restore the soul of this nation to what? Certainly not the Judeo-Christian values that it was founded upon. I'm going to say something that, that some may find offensive, but it won't be the first time I've done it. It won't be the last time I've done it. So here goes. You cannot call yourself a Christian and endorse a Democrat for president. Because a Democrat running for president must agree with the Democrat Party platform. And that platform today pushes same-sex marriage and the murdering of the unborn. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course, anyone can be a Democrat, and they can be opposed to abortion, and they can be opposed to same-sex marriage. But if you're running for president, you cannot oppose it. You must agree with your party's platform. And here's the problem. If you support someone who is for those things that God is against, then the Bible says you are just as guilty as the one who practices such things. That's scary. Romans chapter 1 verse 32 says this, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. My point is there are many churches today who call themselves Christians who are supporting these things that are ungodly. We have so-called Christian churches today that no longer believe or teach the Bible to be the inspired, errant Word of God. We have churches, so-called Christian churches today, that have, instead of pastors teaching God's Word, they're, they're really all they are just motivational speakers. We have churches, so-called Christian churches today, that really all they are about it is money and finding money supporting for their ministry. It's a way to gain monetarily. Pastors who are blatantly false teachers and teaching New Age heresy and calling themselves Christian churches today. And here's what's so sad. You have thousands of people flocking to these churches. Oh, it's so vibrant. Yet Jesus says, yeah, but it's so dead. And sadly, people today mistake a lively church for a church that has life. A lively church has a lot of emotion. A lot of what some would say is, is the Holy Spirit moving in the, church, in the church. But the reality is, that which would make a church lively is just a lot of commotion born out of the energy of their flesh. Because that, if you really want a church that's alive, then you're going to have a church that's committed to holiness. If you want to have a church that's alive, then you're going to want a church that practices and clings to and teaches the Word of God. 
My point is that we mustn't make the mistake that a lot of activity means being alive or having a lot of people coming to your church means that it's alive. We need to discern between being lively and being alive. Just because the church has a lot going on doesn't make it alive. So the criticism. Sardis church had a name. It was alive, but Jesus says it's dead. He says, I've not found your works perfect before God. So this brings us to our third point, the correction. What is the prescription our great physician offers to this dead church? For that matter, what can a believer do that has entered into a dead end state? Well, the key is the way the Lord presents himself to each one of the churches, and it gives us a clue as how we need to get right with him. Go back to verse 2. Jesus says, These things says he who has, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now remember, we looked at this before. The seven spirits are a symbol of the Holy Spirit and his fullness. So what Jesus is saying to these believers and to any believer who has entered into a state of spiritual deadness is what you need is a renewing of the Holy Spirit working in and through your life. The same Holy Spirit that set the early church into motion as alive and well today and is still working in the lives of Christian men and women. And we want to continue that work as, as our verse for the year, uh, Zechariah 4, 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So beginning first and foremost, we need a, a, a breath of God's spirit to fill us each and every day. But there's more. You see, beginning in verse 2 and on into verse 3, Jesus lays out for them and us five things to keep them from dying, to bring life back into this church. Five things that would spark revival in their hearts. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says this, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Stop there for a moment. First thing he says is be watchful. It's a Greek word that means to wake up, Jesus says. Why? Because they were asleep at the will. They were not even aware of their problem. They didn't even know that they were drifting. You know, I grew up in Southern California. I think I've shared this before. Many summers, just about every summer growing up, would spend our summers at Newport Beach. And I would body surf. And body surf back then, it was years ago, they didn't have the rock jetties there. So you actually had good-sized waves, and it was actually really fun. But anyway, you'd look at, I'd look at the lifeguard stand. If we rented a house, say, on 24th Street, I'd look at the lifeguard stand, because what would happen is your body surfing, you, you tend to drift, and all of a sudden you find yourself, oh no, this is, this is lifeguard stand number two. I got 16 blocks, 20 blocks, I got to walk back up to get back to where we're staying. Because you just start drifting, you don't realize you're drifting. But the same thing can happen in the Christian walk. You just keep going along and going along. You don't realize you're drifting away. That's why the writers of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Church in Sardis was drifting and drifting fast. It's been said God's work begins as a movement. It becomes a machine. It turns into a monument. And then it ends up a memorial. That's what happened. To start us. They started to lose sight of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They lost sight of the presence of His Holy Spirit working in the church and in their lives personally. And so Jesus says, wake up spiritually. Be watchful. 
These are very sharp words in the Greek. They're meant as a slap in the face. You know, you've seen those movies. They go, oh, crying, and, and they shake their arms, and they slap them in the face. and snap out of it. Well, thanks, I needed that. Slap them again. It's like a splash of cold water, or a sniff of ammonia, or a shout, an urgent cry, an alarm. Wake up. Jesus is calling us to wake up spiritually. We can't afford to be sleeping spiritually in these last days. We need to recognize the signs that are all around us, that Jesus could return at any moment. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 5.14. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Romans 13.11. And do this knowing the time that is now high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We as Christians need to wake up from spiritual sleep from unconsciousness, unresponsiveness, and inactivity court concerning the things of God. And we need to know we are closer to the Lord's return than we've ever been before. And it's time to pull out all the stops. It's time to sprint towards the finish line. As I already mentioned, one of the things that the Reformation did was rescue key doctrines. But they didn't go far enough. And one of the mistakes the Reformers made was a failure to rethink their view on end times. Luther and his contemporaries carried over Roman Catholic eschatology, which basically means the study of end times, of last things, and they carried over what's basically called an amillennialist viewpoint. We'll get to this when we get to Revelation 20 in our studies, but an amillennial viewpoint interprets Revelation chapter 20 allegorically, and it sees the millennium not as an age when the church will rule and reign with Christ upon the earth for a thousand years, but the amillennial view is Christ's spiritual kingdom is right now in the hearts of believers ruling on this earth right now. So who's right? Is the kingdom of God a future literal kingdom on earth or is it a present spiritual kingdom in the hearts of believers? The answer is yes. Yes. That is, the kingdom is already here in a spiritual sense as Jesus proclaimed in Luke seventeen twenty one. the kingdom of God is within you. But at the same time, the kingdom of God is not yet, and Jesus has not yet personally returned to establish the little kingdom upon the earth promised by both Old and New Testament prophets. So we acknowledge Jesus, acknowledge as believers, Jesus is ruling our lives presently, but we're looking forward to that future day when Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem. But you see, the amillennialist viewpoint brings little expectancy of the Lord's soon return. And as a result, what we see today is that Protestant churches are no longer teaching on the rapture of the church. They're no longer teaching about the seven-year Great Tribulation period. They're no longer even opening up the, the book of Revelation like we're doing right now because they don't believe it speaks to us today. They say, well, prophecy has just caused too much division. Therefore, as a result, in these churches, there's no urgency. There's no anticipation of Christ's return. That's why Jesus challenges the church uh, to, to not only hold fast and repent, and repent, but to watch. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So number one, be watchful. Number two, Jesus says in verse two, strengthen the things which remain. That word strengthen means to stabilize, 
It's a picture of stabilizing a patient in the hospital in order to perform more surgery. Stabilize a patient in order to save his life. Man, how the church needs to be stabilized in its foundation. The, the Bible studies needed strengthening. The, the teaching of doctrines of Christian faith needed strengthening. Their worship needed strengthening. Their observance of baptism and the Lord's suffering. All these things, they needed to strengthen their foundation. The things that they were taught to begin with, they needed to get stabilized. Get back into doing what God has called them to do. It's the same thing you told the church in Ephesus. Get back to that first love relationship you had. Number three, he says, remember therefore how you have received and heard. He says, remember, think back. He says, what was it that you received and heard first initially? It was the Bible. It was the Word of God. It came from Wycliffe and Calvin and Knox and Luther. See, Jesus is calling the church to get back to the teaching of God's Word. He says, remember. Remember how much you love to hear the Word of God taught. Get back to that excitement. Get back to when you were so excited to get to church because you knew that God, through His Holy Spirit, was going to speak to your heart through His Word that morning. Remember those times. Get back to your own personal reading in God's Word and then, then talking to others about what you've just read. Talk about God's Word to your husband or your wife or your children or your friends or family. It's God's phone plan. Fans and fam- friends and family are free to talk on weekends about God's Word. Here's the amazing thing. When you meet with a brother or sister in the Lord and you start talking about what you've studied in God's Word, it's exciting Oh yeah, look what the Lord showed me and you're talking about. Get back to that. We talk so much about the negative. Oh, I don't like this and this isn't going on. Let's talk about the things that are great that we find in God's Word. Because it will give you a greater love for the Lord and a greater love for His Word. Remember therefore how you've received and heard. And then he says, number four, hold fast. And I would say that also means hold fast to the Word of God. Hold fast to the Christian fundamentals. You need to be reading. You need to be praying. You need to be in church. You need to be evangelizing. Get back to those things. Then the fifth thing he says is repent. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Now, repentance doesn't only mean just stop the direction you're going and then stop from what you're doing. It actually means turn around and be submissive to the Lord. Saying, Lord, I'm not only going to stop this old life, I I want to do what you've called me to do. That's what the church needed in Sardis to do, to repent. That's what the Protestant Reformation needed to do. It still does, to repent. That's why Jesus gave us these five things that would spark revival. Wake up, strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. That'll bring revival. I read a quote by R.A. Torrey, This is his prescription for for revival. He writes this. I can give a prescription that will bring revival, revival to any church or community or any city on earth. First, let few Christians get thoroughly right with God. If this is not done, the rest will come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together to pray for revival until God opens the windows of heaven and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for his use as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That is all. I've given this prescription around the world and in no instance has it failed. It cannot fail. I would only add, get back to the Word of God. Finally, Jesus closes with this warning and a promise. Verse 3, he says, Therefore, if you will not watch, 
I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He says, if you don't get back to the basics, if you don't get back to the fundamentals, I'm going to come to you as a thief. Now, again, sadly, this is where many Protestant churches find themselves today. They don't believe in the rapture of the church or the soon return of Jesus Christ or, as I mentioned, the millennial reign of Christ. They're not looking for Christ to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so Jesus is saying there are going to be those that are going to be caught off guard. And let me say this, that is why we as a church, as Calvary Chapel Springfield, we believe and hold true the teachings of a premillennial, pre-tribulational, eminent return of Jesus Christ for his church at the rapture. Show me a church that does not believe in the imminent return of the Lord and I will show you a church that is facing spiritual deadness. Show me a believer that does not believe that Christ will come back at any time and I'll show you a believer who is in some capacity is dead spiritually. Because when you believe that Christ will come back at any time, it's going to have an effect on the way you live. You're going to want to live your life right with Him. John said this in 1 John 3, 3, He that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. It keeps you on your toes. Makes you want to live a certain way to live a godly life. You know, let's say you're at work and you know the boss is coming over to where you're working. You know he's going to be walking by your station in a few moments. Is that going to affect the way you work? Well, it depends how you work. If you're the hard work and you're working under the Lord, it shouldn't. But if you're kind of a lazy bum, kind of just, you know, no, nah, whatever, you know, if you're, you're going to perk up and, oh, he's coming. Oh, i got to look good, you know. Listen, if we know Christ can come back at any time, it should affect the way we live. It should cause us to want to live right, lives that are clean. It should cause us to want to be about our Father's business. And, and it should, but it all depends on what side of the fence you find yourself upon. You see, in Scripture, the return of Jesus is often described in, in two different ways. Which way uh, you take it depends on where you are at in your relationship with Jesus. Consider this ominous warning, this description of the Lord's return found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. That's pretty ominous. But then listen, the prophet continues, doesn't skip a beat in the verse 2. He says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. You see the difference? The difference is that either you'll be greeted with joy or dread, depending upon where you are at with the Lord. See, the church's attitude, or the individual Christian's attitude, for that matter, towards the Lord's return, is always a revelation of that soul's condition before God. We're told in 1 John 2.28, And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ, so that when He returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from Him in shame. Two attitudes are revealed there as well in the, in the return of the Lord. Boldness or shame. If you're abiding in Christ, if you're abiding in His Word, you'll have boldness. You'll be ready for His return. But if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not walking with the Lord, you're going to be ashamed. So where are you at this morning towards his return? The person who is right with Jesus never hears this message without saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come now. Come today. But the person who is not right with God can be filled with a sense of dread or fear because they know in their hearts they're not ready. And Jesus says, therefore, if you will not watch and wake up and repent, the loss is going to be yours. 
Because when I come back from my church, you're going to be caught off guard. And you're going to be ashamed at my coming. Listen, Jesus is calling us to make a change. If there are areas in your life that you would be ashamed of if suddenly you were in the presence of the Lord right now, then you need to make that change right now. Jesus is warning here for us to avoid any future embarrassment when he returns. For those of you that are married, when your wife says to you, are you going to go out wearing that? What? What's wrong with that? It's my favorite t-shirt. Yeah, it's got some holes in it. Yeah, but you're going to meet the president. No, I know. It's all right. She's warning you of a future embarrassment. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's calling us to make a change. And then he gives us promise in verse 4. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. He says, I know there are a few of you guys in this church, and in the church age right now, the Protestant Reformation up to today, he says, you've continued to be true to my word, You've continued to walk the spiritual life. And because you are a true overcomer, a true believer, you will be rewarded with white garments. See, Jesus is talking about eternity. He's talking about never having to deal with the stain of sin again in our lives, the hurt and the destruction that sin brings. And then he continues in verse 5, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. It says, If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it would appear, having your name in this book is very, very important. Understand, when we come to Christ, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Another way of looking at this verse, and some say that everyone's name is, at one point, is written in it. But when they fail to appropriate the provision of God in Christ, their name is blotted out. If you fail to repent of your sin, if you fail to accept the finished work of Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of your sin, your name is blotted out. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, For this is the end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. He's the Savior of all men. Jesus died for the whole world, but only those who receive that sacrifice, what Jesus did, only those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ will find their names written in the book of life and not blotted out. Folks, we need to take this verse very seriously. Because the question needs to be asked, does this mean that yours or my names can be blotted out of the book of life? You know, this is not the only place that it speaks of blotting out your name. Moses, in pleading to God for the people. He said to the Lord in Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord replied to Moses in verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. There's a good example of how we should take this warning very seriously. It's found in the life of a man that was named Charles Templeton. Maybe you've heard of him. About a generation ago, he was deeply involved in the foundations of Youth for Christ and, and impacted the nation for Jesus. Many people came to faith in Christ because of his meetings. In fact, Mr. Templeton worked alongside Billy Graham in the early years. But then something happened. He changed. He renounced his belief in Jesus Christ. He even renounced his belief in God and said he was a, an atheist. Charles Templeton totally renounced his early confessions of faith and wanted to rescue the people 
out of those that he brought to Jesus. In his apostate state, he died in 2001 at 85 years old. Now, you can debate all day long whether he was ever saved in the first place or if he lost his salvation. But at the end of the day, there's only two conclusions. First, at one time, by all human appearance, he was saved. Second, he didn't honor the warnings of the Bible telling us to keep walking, to keep trusting, and to keep persevering in the faith. He didn't wake up. He didn't strengthen. He didn't remember. He didn't hold fast. He didn't repent. Imagine the fear and disappointment as you stand before God and you see the place where your name was once written and now it's blotted out before him. But here's the good part. Imagine the joy and the excitement to stand before God and see your name written in the book of life, not blotted out, and hear Jesus confessing your name as he says here before his Father and before the angels in heaven. Dad, all you angels around here, this is Tom Humphrey here. He belongs to me. I know him. I died for him. His sin has been forgiven. Let me tell you, I am so looking forward to that, the Lord confessing my name before his Father. That's my only hope. If it doesn't happen, I'm, I'm a goner. I've had it. But you see, the choice is yours. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father, which is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. There are many who profess Christianity, but they did not profess Christ. They, 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 he, he might have been their Savior, so to speak, but he wasn't their Lord. See, Christ demands a personal commitment. Not a commitment to a church or a religion or a creed, but a relationship to the living Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 6, as we close, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to listen. We need to apply what Jesus says. Listen, today could be the day that the Lord decides to return for His church. Or it could be the day He decides to return for you personally. Your time could be up. And the question needs to be answered. Are you ready? If the Lord would return today, are you ready? Are you excited about his return? Are you kind of a little ashamed? Are you confident that Jesus will confess you before his Father and before his angels? Or do you have some doubt? Listen, I don't want anyone to have any doubt whatsoever. So I encourage you, if you've drifted, take a look at the lifeguard stand. See where you're at. Turn back to the lifeguard. Turn back to our Savior. Recommit your life to him. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, don't wait another moment. Give your life to him this morning. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. That means, Lord, if we cry out to you and we ask you to forgive us and we commit our life to you, Lord, you will accept us, you will cleanse us, you will forgive us. Lord, you will not blot out our name in the book of life. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has never surrendered their heart and life to you, that they would do so this morning. They wouldn't wait another moment. Father, there may be some here that have drifted and drifted way far down, Lord, but you're calling us to, to wake up, to get back to those things that we once knew were important, uh, your word, applying your word to our lives living for you every day, confessing you before men. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that needs to rededicate their life to you this morning, 
that they would do so as well. Make that commitment today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? First time relationship, you want to give your life to Him, you want to be born again this morning. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. God bless you. I see your hand. Anybody else? You want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to know if you were to die that you would go to heaven, that you'd be with Jesus? Anybody else? Just raise your hand. God bless you too. Anybody else? God loves you so much. Sent Jesus to die for you on the cross. Pay for every sin you've ever committed so when you stand before God on that day, He'll see His Son, Jesus Christ. He won't see your sin. But if you don't receive Christ, He'll see your sin and you have to pay the penalty for it, which is death, which is eternally separated from God, which is hell. Anybody else you want to give your life to Christ this morning? Maybe you're here, maybe you've drifted and you've drifted pretty far down and you want to return back to Jesus Christ. You want to rededicate your life to Him. Is that your desire this morning? Lord, I've I've walked away. I've not been living for you. I want to, Lord, I rededicate my life to you this morning. Raise your hand this morning so I could pray for you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you as well. Two more moments. Just raise your hand. I can see it and pray for you. Father, I thank you for those that have made the commitment to follow you, Lord. I thank you for those that have made the commitment to rededicate their life to you. Now, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if we just pray this prayer, those that have raised their hands, just pray this prayer, repeat it after me. God will do that work in your heart if you truly believe what you're praying. God will save you. God will cleanse you. God will restore you. Just repeat after me. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry, Lord, for drifting away from you. Lord, I'm sorry for the way I've sinned against you. I ask you to forgive me. Jesus, come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. I want to follow you from this day forward. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for forgiving me. I commit my life to you now. And I recommit my life to you now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand for all those that raised their hand. Believe what God has done in your heart by faith. I'd love to give you a Bible. I'd love to pray with you even more if you have gave your life to the Lord for the first time. Uh, the elders of the church, the elders' wives will be up front. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. Uh, if not, if you don't come up, get into God's Word. Read, pray, share your faith, be in church. Get back to the foundations, and God will bless your walk with them. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song together.